This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today we're joined by Eddie Barco. This is a really cool opportunity. Eddie runs Nebula Music. It's another podcast, but I'm really happy to bring him on because Eddie is a drummer. I've not had very many musicians. As a matter of fact, um, I think Dustin Cubitt and like. I don't know, show 10 or earlier might've been my last musician. There are other people who might play, but Eddie is officially a professional drummer. He goes, he gigs, he gets paid to play, but like any other real musician out there, Eddie's a bit of a hustler. I have to be, (laughs) I have to be, man. (laughs) How many side hustles do you have going right now, Eddie? Oh oh my God, man. There's so many that many people don't know about, but I guess officially I have about three side hustles, not including my main hustle, which is playing drums. Very cool. And hey, thanks for coming on, by the way. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. I always love, I mean, if you can't tell, I love talking to people and I love just, I could sit for hours just talking about random things and which is why I have a podcast. And I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on the show. Well, very cool. Now, um, I believe you are the the drummer for Jake Davis. Yeah, correct. So um, basically, I am the drummer for this artist called Jake Davis based in Los Angeles. I also play for a lot of other artists. And for those of you guys that might not be aware of how the music industry works in terms for musicians, there's many different ways that you can go about it. But I'm primarily what's called a session drummer, right? So that's if you can label a term on me, it's I'm a session drummer, which means I get called on a daily basis to sort of jump in on different projects, especially because I live in Los Angeles. This is a entertainment heavy town. So there are tons of bands and artists that come through town to either do, you know, late night to do a show last minute, do a showcase. Maybe they have a spot on a festival or they come to record an album. You know, all these producers and managers have a list of musicians that they can use on the fly to fill in for projects. And so I'm primarily one of those guys. I'm a drummer that gets called in to fill in a project because I can learn songs really quickly. I can bring in my equipment and record a song and and be done with it. But with Jake, he is my only he's the only artist I play with officially right now at the moment. Um, So, like I said, I'm a session guy. So I play with all this bunch of people when I need to. But with Jake, when we play shows. I'm his band member. Like I'm part of his band. We tour together and we play music together. So I'm part of that group. And uh, it's been a blast. You know, Jake and the rest of the guys are incredibly talented. And um, they're the only band that I had played with that I felt genuinely connected with, which is why I decided that I wanted to be officially part of that group. Um, Because I'm sure you're aware, you know, when you feel something or a connection to something, um, you kind of want to try and be as much a part of it as you can. So Me being a drummer and playing on so many projects, you sort of get used to the concept of playing music. And I'm not sure if that makes any sense. But, you know, when you play with a talented musician, you know, you kind of get used to that whole concept of just playing with really good people. But sometimes that connection isn't there. I can play with the world's greatest guitarist, but if we're not vibing together, if he just doesn't understand me creatively or there's just not an energy together, it can be very tedious. But there is that rare occurrence where you meet a group of people that all sort of share that same mindset and same energy. And that's what happened when I met Jake. He asked me to to come by and uh, play drums for a show. And I just met him. I rehearsed once and we just vibed so well. I met the rest of the guys and we were having fun. And I was just blown away by their attention to detail and their and the importance that they laid on songwriting, on songwriting, and which is something that you don't find with a lot of musicians. And so long story short, 
I played the show and I loved it. And I told him like, Hey, I want to be a part of this like full time. I don't want to just, you know, play once and then never see you guys again. I would love to sort of remain here. And they were like, we feel the same. So I've been playing with them for about three, four years now. And it's been, it's been a blast. It's been a, an amazing journey. Cool. And significantly, you kind of um, buried a little bit of the lead because you're a session musician, you can read music and you have a music degree. And yes. that is a big deal. Not yes. every drummer out there has this. It's true. Not every drummer or musician, for that matter, has that. Um, and here, here's the interesting part. I'm, I'm sort of kind of, I, I ramble a lot. I, I hope you apologize. And I just like telling stories and kind of sort of um, jumping back and forth. But I promise there's a point to a lot of the things that I say. The interesting thing about the reading part and being a session guy is if if it was 10 years ago, the reading aspect of music and, and doing all that would have been a lot more important. Right now, there's a huge influx of musicians coming from all over the United States. I, I'm, I'm just going to focus on the United States. I know that it's different for other countries, but because I live here, I think that's just, you know, that's what I know. And there are so many musicians that are coming from all over the place, moving to Los Angeles and trying to get a piece of this, you know, music session life. And a lot of them are not necessarily that good at reading music or that well-versed in being educated. Sure. And that's primarily because right now with YouTube and Instagram and all this social media stuff, there are so many people out there that are learning the whole secret behind just taking action and just doing stuff and just teaching yourself and, and getting out there and doing stuff. So reading music is important and understanding how these things are done is important, but now more than ever, there's so many more like DIY things going on. There's so many musicians coming out of nowhere that don't know how to read music, but they're they're hustlers and they know how to get their name out there. So people will invite them out just to play and they get a career out of it. So, yeah, absolutely. But if you figure that there's uh, 200 gigs out there, you're eligible for all 200. Right, right, right. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. 170 right others could get a whatever. like i can, I can jump on an orchestra i can jump on an orchestra or exactly. big band and read their charts and all that as a matter of fact a lot of your gigs are churches right yeah yes they are and that's that's another interesting side but when it comes to churches here in la there's a lot of big churches you'd be surprised how many mega sized churches exist in los angeles and i think many people don't think that LA is a very strictly like religious town because you know I think when you think of religion and Christianity and all that you think of mm. other states or other cities but Los Angeles surprisingly enough is very big on that um and so I play for a lot of the big churches a lot of the big mega ones and um there are a couple that require you to read and require you require you to be more on the formal side of music but mm. I would say 70% of them at this point don't necessarily require you to know all that. They just require you to be a good musician and be able to play to uh, click and backing tracks, which um, I'm not sure how I'm, I'll just go ahead and let you guys know for most professional drummers and musicians, when you see them on stage and you see them playing shows with big musicians and stuff, they're playing in their headphones or in-ears. They're playing to backing tracks and click tracks. Those are automated things that sort of keep track of where you're going. And if you're not trained in that, you it's very hard to sort of get a professional gig out here in Los Angeles. So in the church scene, if you can do that, if you're really good at following a click, a metronome, and you're good at following backing tracks, then you're good. You know, there you're good to go. Um, but again, that that being said, you know, it's hard to find a drummer that's like good at all that. You know what I mean? And that's why I sort of get called in to play in all these churches because I can learn a song in an hour or learn a set in an hour and just go in and play it and then, you know, go about my day and it's, and it's, and it's good and it's fun. 
absolutely love playing for for all the churches that I play out here. It's definitely a lot of fun to do. Well, very cool. And you have a, um, a religious background with your family too, correct? I do. I absolutely do, man. And that's it's a very interesting, interesting like long history behind that. Um, but you know, my family grew up. Well, okay. Well, I, I grew up Christian, right? My family's a very devout Christian family. And so I grew up in church a lot, but I'm Hispanic. So I'm Guatemalan. And so I grew up in the Hispanic culture, Christianity side of the, of, of all things, which is very, what was that? Catholic? No, no, just, um, Protestant. Pentecostalist really? okay. primarily. So Pentecostalist. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, woof, that's man, hardcore. That's so hardcore when it comes to that. And if Hispanics tend to be very, very devout Christians, you know, if you ever travel to Central America, South America, Mexico, wherever Hispanic culture, you know, exists, um, they're very devout. And you tend to find that most Christian, uh, most Hispanic people either tend to be really heavily involved in the Christian side or the flip or polar opposite side, which is like the whole magical, you know, like Santeria kind of thing. Like I'm not trying to all bridge it on one in one area, but that's how it is. So spiritual, very spiritual. Yeah. So Hispanic culture tends to be a very spiritual culture overall, no matter where you go. Um, And so my family was very Christian. You know, we grew up very much in the Pentecostalist world and I grew up uh, here in Los Angeles, born and raised. And my church and my family specific uh, was a very, influential, very well-known family in our Hispanic demographic or Hispanic denomination. And I grew up wanting to play music at church. Uh, but, you know, we're immigrants. My family is an immigrant family. And mm-hmm. we didn't have a lot of money to, you know, invest in lessons or invest in any sort of music education or even in instruments for that matter. So I really wanted to learn how to play drums at a very, very young age. Uh, and so I was very fortunate that I grew up in church because I was able to grow up and watch all these musicians, drummers, bands kind of come through my church and play. And so at a very young age, I was like, I need to learn how to play music. So I didn't have any money for drum lessons or an instrument or anything. So I started sneaking into my church uh, every night that we would be there. I would sneak back into the church for like 10 to 20 minutes every night until I would get kicked hmm. out and just teach myself music. Like I would memorize what the drummer or musicians were playing that day and I would just sort of sing it back to myself and I would I would play like that. And I did that for six years, man. Like that's when did I start? I think I was like like 10 or something like that. And I did that for six to eight years, just constantly practicing like 20 minutes at a time. I would go home and then I would set up my desk. I would put on magazines and I would play to that. And so that's how I taught myself how to play drums. I didn't have that instrument for most of my life. I didn't have my first drum set until I was 19 when I was when I went off to college and I saved up money to buy my first drum set. So a lot of people were very surprised, you know, when I was young, sort of growing up in this musician scene and I was able to play professionally very young in the Hispanic world, they were very surprised that I didn't own an instrument. You know, like that was a thing that if you're a drummer, you kind of need to have a drum set. It's very hard to teach yourself drums, not have an instrument. So have you, have you ever heard about the Chinese piano players? No, I have not. Okay. Well, obviously there's a lot of folks in China who are poor. Yeah. Extremely poor. And they would get an opportunity to play on a real piano for a few minutes a week. Wow. But they spent all their time at home practicing on paper. Yeah. So your tale reminds me kind of, of these Chinese piano players and some of them became very, very accomplished. Yeah. And they had to teach themselves at home on paper 
for that one hour opportunity or one or 20 minutes. I don't know how long they had, but it seems almost identical to your story. Well, you know, what's interesting about that concept is it's instruments or music in a way it's all muscle memory. Like when you really think about it, no matter what you play, no matter what you sort of hear, it's the majority of it is muscle memory. And so it's kind of interesting what you can accomplish without an instrument. So I can totally picture myself drawing keys on a paper and practicing that for hours a day. And then I sit on a piano, it might feel slightly different, but the idea is if your fingers already sort of know where to go, then theoretically wise, your learning curve will be faster that way. And for me, it was the same way. You know, I spent hours on my desk sort of tapping with pencils and with sticks and stuff. And so by the time I got to the drum set, mentally, I knew where to go. You know what I mean? Did you all do I the buckets do... like in New York at all? Or... No, not at all. I never, I never did any of the bucket stuff. I know as a kid, I did a whole bunch of the, the pots and pans things in the kitchen floor. Um, oh, your mom loved it. Oh, uh, actually, did she like it? <laughs> I, I don't know. Actually, I think she might have actually hated it. I think they... I, I, I am assuming that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's interesting, though? And here's one thing. It's a sidetrack complete, but I got to give kudos. And, and, and I'm very grateful for my family because even though I was a bit of an annoying kid, you know, tapping on things and stuff like that, they never ever mm-hmm. told me to stop. You know, I mean, think about it as an immigrant family. And, um, you know, when you grew up as a Hispanic in Los Angeles and you're sort of in poverty and, and um, you know, with all that pressure against you, a lot of families don't encourage their kids to go after arts because it's not a very realistic thing to do. And, and, and I can't sure. blame them because you sort of want your kids to grow up and have a better life than you did. But my family was very supportive from the very beginning. They were very much like, hey, find your own way. If you want to tap on pots, go for it kind of thing yeah but you did get a 4.4 gpa i think you said oh i did i did and that's another one of those were fulfilling the requirement i was on the other end yeah i was and i have a question for you on that um i'm guessing i could be wrong did you have a a lot of time for the ladies while you're getting your 4.4 gpa (laughs) no not at all um not at all (laughs) i laugh about that but it's i mean it wasn't really a priority for me I, i i mean well, that that leads me to another story. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Adam Carolla. He's out of L.A., big-time podcaster. No, actually. But, well, he talks about uh, John Popper of uh, Blues Traveler. And John Popper didn't get much time with the ladies when he was in high school. <laughs> he spent all of his evenings with his harmonica in his room alone. Wow. And is now one of the best you know, mouth harp guys on the planet. And he has all the ladies. So in a weird way, you got the grades, you got the skills, and now you can pick up the ladies. You have time for that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, I feel like I don't have enough time for that stuff anymore. Uh, it's, I, I've never had a lot of time for other recreational things. Like I make time for everything that I want to do. But you're absolutely right. I think growing up in high school and stuff, I was always a good student. I uh, was able to get my GPA. I got all these scholarships and blah, 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 while still being able to focus on music. But can I tell you an interesting story about after high school? So you're right. I was a very good student in high school. Very good. 4.4 GPA, all that. Great. Um, But when it was time to graduate and I was a senior and, you know, you apply to colleges and all that, I applied to about 10 different schools, UCLA, uh, UC Berkeley, all those included. And I got into everywhere, everywhere that I applied. I mean, I had the grades and all that. I got a full-ride scholarship to UC Berkeley and, and a couple other colleges. But I set my heart on going to this college called Cal State University Northridge uh, here in Los Angeles, which is a great school, 
but it's a lesser known school compared to like Berkeley or UCLA. Right. And I did that because I was very set on studying music. I got flown up to UC Berkeley. I got a private tour of the university and I requested, can I see the band director? We went to the band room and he asked me, hey, are you serious about studying music? And I said, yes. He said, don't come here then. This is not the school <laughs> to study arts. So I denied all my applications from all over the place. And I decided to go to CSUN because CSUN had the best jazz program in California at the time, even better than USC, right. you know? Um, and so I gave up everything, came to Cal State Northridge, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to study jazz. And uh, here's the, the kicker. I got denied from the program six mm -hmm. times in a row. So I auditioned for this jazz, very prestigious jazz program for two and a half years. Uh, and they said no every single time. And so I felt heartbroken after the second oh, sure. year. I mean, I gave up everything and they told me no. So the seventh time I decided, you know what, to hell with it. I'm going to study music business instead. We'll see if I can get in. Got in, got my degree and all that was great. And I had a lot of fun. But the interesting part was after all. And, oh, and by the way, with part of the music degree, you also get to study music too. That's why I did it is you get sort right, of like right. a hybrid. You get to study music and performance, but at the same time studying how the music industry works and business aspects and all that, which was a great, great combination. Probably a better degree in the end. In a way, yeah, it's absolutely true. I love my time there and it sort of gave me a different mindset and approach rather than just focusing on playing music. It sort of taught you to combine them, you know, be like, hey, you know, think about how you can apply your music to what's going on in publishing or what's going on with the PROs and copyright and all this bunch of stuff. Amazing. And now you're getting a master's degree with Gary Vanderchuk, right? <laughs> exactly. <Or> Vanderchuk. <laughs> exactly. Um, that he is my, my professor, my mentor and all that. Um, but, but okay. So, but um, the story is leading somewhere. Essentially after I graduated 2013, um, I graduated, you know, got my degree. And at the time I was working uh, as a fashion designer. You know, that's actually one of my other side hustles is I'm really good at designing artwork and all that stuff. And it was fun. Like I was doing it full time. Hmm. And what I started doing the minute I graduated, I started noticing that on Instagram and Facebook and social media, there were tons of musicians getting recognition, sort of becoming famous that way. But Instagram right. at the time was a very new thing. Instagram had only been, been around for about a year or so. And music on there wasn't very common. And I started noticing that all these kids were getting reposted by this big drumstick company called Vicfirth, right? They're still the biggest company to this day. So I thought to myself, I can do that. You know, I see a lot of these guys playing. I feel like I'm as good enough to get reposted. So I started driving back to my school early in the morning every day at like 4.30 in the morning because they had access to drum set rooms. And I would sneak mm -hmm. in and I would set up my crappy webcam at the time. I even became friends with the janitors because they were like, oh, here comes this kid again, super early. <laughs> um, and I would just, I started making videos like in late 2013. Um, I'm sorry, late 2014. It was a year after I graduated. I started making videos for the whole sole purpose of getting reposted by this big drum account. And that was just my goal. And to this day, it's never actually happened. I never, ever got reposted by that one company. But within six months or so, I would say maybe six to eight months, I started getting, getting a fan base. I got about 2,000 followers. People started requesting me to do certain songs, to do this lesson or teach them how to do stuff. And I sort of shifted my focus from trying to get reposted to sort of catering to this audience I was creating. And within about a year or two, I, I developed or gained about 30,000 followers, which sort of skyrocketed me or you know catapulted me to a different level of my music career. Sure. And that's one of those things where I sort of take pride in that. And I was very happy that, that I sort of took 
hold of this whole social media thing because I mean, honestly, without it, I wouldn't have known that I had this hustle and this mindset of just sort of going after things. And it, it, it was really because I was rejected by what I wanted the most. It sort of encouraged me or at least forced me to go a different route and rather than sort of give up and then just, and, and rather than just sit there and be like, wow, well, the program I really wanted rejected me. I didn't stop. I found a different way. You know, like I found right. a different way to sort of achieve the same thing. And now I'm at, I mean, I, when I think back about it, I had no idea that this would happen. I did not have planned that I would ever do anything on Instagram, but I did it. I didn't know anything about it. I grabbed it and it led me to where I'm at today, you know, and that's sort of how I approach different things now, even with all my side hustles, even with this podcast that I'm on with you and the podcast that I run, I sort of just grab opportunities. I see what I want to do. I grab it and I sort of figure my way through it. And I don't really stop until I get to where I need to be. Basically stuff that I learned from Mr. Gary Vee, like we were talking about, <laughs> hustling and just doing stuff. You know what I mean? Like you can spend so much time planning and worrying and, and, and you know, asking yourself, why did this door close? But instead of doing that, I take action. And my life has been not perfect, but it's been fun. For sure. No, planning actually burned you at one point. It did. It absolutely did. And that's why I think it's interesting that my life sort of starts with me being this very perfect student, you know, 4.4 GPA. My life was great. I had all these planned routes and then I chose what I wanted to do and it was taken away from me. So rather than, mm -hmm. you know, sort of letting it break my heart, I maneuvered around it and found my own way, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, you also have a tale of, I can't remember how many episodes you had put together. Oh my God. Oh go yeah. That? Yeah. Okay. So that's another great example. Yeah. So when I started the podcast, I had about, can't remember, remember the exact number, but I had about 20 to 30 interviews already ready to go. These are interviews from people that I had met that they sort of knew who I was other professional musicians that were famous, you know, on social media and mm -hmm. stuff. And I lost all of them except for one. Well, I, I'm sorry, except for two. And the reason why is I was using this free software at the time. Again, I had no idea how to podcast. So I just used some free software that I found to record these interviews. And this software just messed up the audio. I sent it to studios, to my mixer friends, everybody, and nobody could fix it. Nobody knew how to fix my episodes. So I was sitting there asking myself, like, well, is this the universe telling me that I just should not start a podcast? Because clearly I lost all my work. And uh, I decided that I would just start all over. I said, you know what? Let's just see. Now that I know how not to do it, let me try and doing it the right way. And I reached out to all those people that I had interviewed before. And almost all of them said no. Like most of them decided that they didn't want to do the interview again, which I understand. I wouldn't want to do this sure. interview twice. Um, but that also directed me into a different route. And when I first started the podcast, my goal was to sort of interview only drummers or like session guys like myself. Right. Um, but because I lost those it catapulted me in a different direction where I sort of decided to interview more social media people, but as artists as well that are backed by labels and, and basically create a product that encompassed a good amount of the music industry in terms of musicians, artists and stuff like that. And honestly, if my episodes had not been erased, had not failed, I don't know if I would have gone this route, to be honest with you. But it was clearly, looking back on it, the better route. You know what I mean? Sure. Like the route I took ended up being a great route. And obviously, I'm not going to sit here and, and try and think about so hard what would have happened if nothing would have gone wrong. But I loved what happened now at this point. I think there was a lesson in there. And that's where I was saying that your planning burned you. 
Yeah, it did. What you sat there just stockpiling, stockpiling, stockpiling interview man. after yep. after interview instead of let me get some product and let me get it out there and yep. let me get moving. Yep. And Gary Vee would be on your case about that too. Oh, he because you stockpiled, you lost all stockpile versus if you were trying to publish after the first interview and it was bad audio, well, then you would have caught it yep. early, right? Yeah. But because you had it all stockpiled together, you just kept collecting, 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 and then uh oh, you had a whole pile of garbage. And I'm only bringing this up because um, it took me 10 years to get the nerve to start my podcast. And I think that everyone, there's a certain point you just need to hit record and you've got to go through it. Yeah. Um, you, you're a drummer, right? Yeah. You sucked to start, didn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. A hundred percent. Everybody sucks to start. Yeah. And the only way you can get good is by sucking. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what's, I think there's there's so many lessons to be talked about that and we can literally spend weeks talking about this stuff but like you're absolutely right if if Gary V had known who I was and I mean he doesn't know who I am but if he if he had known me at the time where I was stockpiling stuff he definitely would have been on my case and my lesson at least for myself was that you know I think planning is necessary up until some degree I mean I mean I'm sure you had to plan a little bit to start this podcast just like myself but there is a lesson to be learned in just doing things you know you can spend your whole life planning you can spend your whole hours of the day just planning what you're gonna do but at some point you're gonna need to do something and you're gonna have to accept that you're not gonna do well i mean like the reality is the odds of you doing something perfect right off the back is are very low i mean i'm sure there are some people out there that can knock something out of the park on the first bat but i think most people most of us uh, are gonna suck and they're gonna miss a few swings but the idea is if you're not out there swinging if you're not out there you know metaphorically you know, grabbing that bat and just sort of swinging, you're never going to hit anything. You know what I mean? And so for me, for me, I've been sort of learning that as I go to sort of catch myself when I'm starting to plan something to sort of set myself a deadline of like when I'm going to try something, when I'm going to experiment and then sort of take those lessons and go back to the drawing board kind of thing. And I think that approach for me sort of of planning, executing, planning, executing, replanning has worked out a lot, has worked out really well for me. And if it wasn't for that failure, I probably would just still be planning, to be honest with you. Would have stockpiled 30 more episodes, and who knows if I ever would have released them. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And um, the other thing, too, is you're in the musical world. I think the uh, average overnight sensation is, what, 10 years? I don't know, to be honest with you. But, I mean, it's not. I don't, it's not overnight. It's it, not overnight. These people yeah, that's are definitely toiling. The They're toiling in these small clubs and everything else. and. Of course, it seems overnight because you didn't hear them one day and you did hear them the next day. Yep. But the truth is that, I mean, the first album probably takes them 10 years to write. Yeah. You know, you know what? It depends. But yes, there are some people out there that it took them a while to sort of um, get there. But I'm going to give this example. I, I love this example. Um, Jason Mraz, right? I'm sure you're, you're aware of Jason Mraz, right? The artist. I'm not. I'm sorry. It's all good. So <laughs> Jason Mraz, you know, he's, he's a very well-known singer-songwriter, right? And he got discovered in San Diego out of all places. So San Diego, love the city. It's beautiful. Uh, but, you know, in terms of music, compared to Los Angeles, San Diego's music scene is not as large. It's definitely large, but not, not as big. Um, but he's this humongous megastar. And I don't right. think many people would have assumed or have predicted that this just guy from San Diego would be as huge as he is. And the way he got started is he was just playing coffee shops. And his mentality was, I'm perfecting my craft. 
as I do things. You know, whenever he interviews, right. he constantly always says, you know, like I was not waiting for anything. I wasn't necessarily hoping that something would happen. I think most most of us do. Most of us dream and we sort of have this like, you know, we want to be up there in the stars. But sure. his whole approach was like, I'm going to go do it. You know, I'm going to start playing coffee shops. I'm going to work my way there. He didn't necessarily understand when it was going to happen, but he knew that by him sitting at his house, just playing his guitar by himself, wasn't going to getting uh, get him anywhere yeah. closer. So he decided that he was going to keep practicing at home, but every week he was going to go to a coffee shop and start playing. And that's how he got discovered is, you know, some executives from LA went down to San Diego to hang out kind of thing. And sure enough, he was at a coffee shop performing and they were like ah this guy might have it and things happen from there and i'm, I'm sure the there's Tracy I, chapman story i mean there's there's so many stories like that you know, there's so many but stories where like you feel like they got discovered by chance but the reality is they had to be there you know what i mean like the reality is you sort of have to show up for those opportunities to happen um because what he did with smart too though oh, yeah. because he's, he's he can practice at home and get his craft but he's playing in front of an audience no matter how small it is Hmm, they didn't react to the song. Let me change the tempo a little bit. Yeah. Oh, they're really reacting to this song. Let me start. Okay, am I going to go this direction here a little bit? And he's getting feedback. Yeah. Because if you're noodling at the house, yes, you're getting better, 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 but you're not you're not communicating with actual people. Right. So I think that that actually probably, you'd call it a force multiplier. Well, so there's the actual action of taking it, right? But then you add the audience. Right. So it's um, one plus one is three in that case. Because yeah. Because it's triple as important as just one or the other. Yeah. And you know what's another important thing about that lesson with Jason Mraz and I'm sure other artists too. And he says this in all his, on all his interviews too, is that he, at the end of the day, was doing what he loved. You know, and that's, I think, one of the things that a lot that hold a lot of people back, including myself. I got to put myself in that category. I'm not some sort of guru. I, I make mistakes all the time. But I think the ego, right, the ego and the sort of, you know, you know, the desire to be greater than you are in a way um, tends to hold a lot of people back because there aren't that many people that I know of that would have the balls. And excuse me for saying that, but that would have the balls to go play at a random coffee shop to three people that don't care who you are. I mean, that takes right. a lot of guts to just sit out there, put yourself, you know, whether it's, you know, with Jason Mraz playing his songs to people that don't care who he was. But the way he approached it was, this is what I want to do. I love playing right. music. One day I hope to be playing on a stadium. So I'm going to figure out how to get there by doing. But at the core of it is because he loved it. So the question there that I sort of learned for myself and asked myself is, what do I want to do, first of all? So if I want to be playing on stadiums with, let's say, U2, right? Let's say I want to play, be playing with U2 right. one day. How am I going to get there? And you can write millions of different ways to get there. But the idea is at some point you have to ask yourself, if I really, really want this, if I really, 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 really want to be doing music as a career, how far am I willing to go? How far am I willing to go? And at the flip side, how low are you willing to go? Are you willing to go on the corner of the street and playing buckets? Are you willing to go to the coffee shop and play to nobody that nobody cares? And not everybody's way is the same. You know, I don't go to coffee shops to go play, but I'm very heavily involved on social media. That's my way. You know, like I sure. go balls to the walls when it comes to that. I don't rest. And so when other people ask me questions and I talk to people about like, what should I do? You know, blah, blah, blah. I always ask them, you know, Think about what you really want. If you really, really want it, 
then nothing would stop you from getting it and you'd sort of just start doing it. And so I think that's one of the lessons that I constantly remind myself is that planning is good. Visualizing where you want to go is good, but you also have to execute. You have to try something and it doesn't have to be Jason Mraz's way. That's another thing. It doesn't have to be my way either. It has to be your way, but you have to be acting to figure out what your way is, if that makes sense. Sure. Sure. And it's harder in some ways too, um, being a drummer and jumping forward because you're a supporting player yeah. by position. I mean, and, you know, there's the rare ones where you have a singing drummer. <laughs> That's very rare. They, it's very, it's it, hard. It, it's, it's hard to do, guys. Hard. It's really hard to do. Oh, yeah. And you'll find that a lot of singing bass players and singing drummers, they sing in rhythm. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It, it, you could just totally tell that it's um, forcing the doubt. So by that nature well you maybe could be picked up in a band but you're really dependent on others in a sense because you're a supporting player right so it's hard to carve your own yeah and you know what's interesting about that is um i keep saying you know what's interesting about that everything's interesting in a way uh but like so for me i come from a very i would say most drummers do come from a very technical background i mean our instrument is a very technical instrument you have to learn so many small minute movements to create grand music basically um but the interesting thing about the pop world that i'm part of is there's a a shift in focus from technical talent or technical musicality to the song itself and Mm -hmm. You'll notice that when you do that switch, when you come from a jazz or, you know, playing very, very complicated stuff to a pop, more simplified version world, you know, of music, um, it's a huge culture shock. And so for me, right. I learned from Jake primarily um, the beauty and the art form of playing cymbal, you know, and, and this is something I try and teach to a lot of my students, my drum students, is that when... When you start playing pop music, when you start playing, you know, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but there's this huge concept or this huge mindset from a lot of people that pop music has no talent, you know, that there's no talent when it comes to writing very simple songs or writing very just like to the point songs. And right. I used to think that way. And then when I started playing pop, it sort of blew me away the different kind of talent that comes with that the different kind of talent as a drummer to be able to sort of stop and just let this, the song breathe. And I like to bring up the Beatles as an example for that, because the Beatles mm-hmm. has, they have Ringo Starr, right? And Ringo Starr, sure. um, for all of you guys who might be aware, or might not be aware, he's not considered a drummer drummer, you know, from drummer's perspective, he's very much just some dude to kind of learn how to play drums, but he, no, the old joke is that he was the second best drummer in the band. Exactly. <laughs> But see, here's the beauty part of it. When you analyze the Beatles music, right, considered, you know, the greatest songs in the world, Ringo did not approach them or these songs as a normal drummer would. Like when I listen to Beatles songs, I can tell you five different ways that I would play the beats. He would do them the last, the last way that I would think of. But because of that, the songs are legendary. And that's the beauty of pop music is that the emphasis isn't on the virtuosity of the musicians. It isn't on how technical we can be or how fast I can play. It's about the song. Well, yeah, it's, it's about the hook and it's about the song. And I love that. And when I got introduced to the concept of playing simple and, and sort of taking Ringo's approach and understanding the beauty of listening to a song, listening to the, what the guitar player is doing and melodically trying to apply something with my instrument, 
that would enhance the song as opposed to just playing something cool and something fast to think of it. I'm like, all right, maybe it would be best if at this point I do a really heavy stop and take a break for about a second and then come back in. And that gives a very huge like impact to the song as opposed to me just you know, like it's so you let it breathe, you let it breathe. And, and those are concepts that you learn in the pop world that you don't necessarily sure. learn when you're studying jazz and more complicated stuff. And again, it's one of those things where it's a different, it's a different side. Some people really sure, enjoy sure. playing complicated and fast and, and jazz, but when you cross over to the more popular scene, those are lessons that sort of hit you in the face that you as a professional quote unquote professional drummer, you got to let go of that ego. You get hit really fast. You'll get called up for an audition or a gig and you'll go inside of a recording session and you're this jazz guy who can play super fast. And then the manager or the the mixer will be like, hey, that's great. How about we tone it down a second and you just play very simple. And that, man, that can crush your ego so much because you're like, wow, I, I've spent all my life learning how to play super complicated. And now the mixer's telling me, don't play that. Play the very simple stuff that you learned on day one. But then if you really internalize it and you understand why that's important, you understand the whole point of being part of a unit and letting the song breathe, then that feeling is way more like it feels it just feels so great when you're on stage and you're in a recording studio and you're playing so simple. But then the song just sounds so great. That's the feeling that you just feel accomplished as a musician. And that's the feeling I'm, I'm sure Ringo and the Beatles and all the classic bands felt when they actually made a song that felt great even if it was simple that's the beauty of it all and i'm i apologize if i was rambling there for a second i was trying to get to the point but like that's what i love about music and playing in the pop scene is that it there's different lessons to be learned with whatever style you're playing and Mm -hmm. in order in order to be great at that specific style you got to sort of learn those lessons that come with it whether it's playing pop whether it's playing jazz or even like heavy metal or any other complicated type of music each genre is going to have its lessons and it's kind of up to you to let go of your ego and either learn the lessons or not, if that makes sense. Well, the truest um, form of art or, you know, impactful art, music, etc., is when you take something, you make something, take something familiar and add something novel. Yeah. And when you have that, that's when you really get it. So, some of what you're talking about, you know, learning to step step back in is awesome. But then as you learn that, then you can sneak in a couple yep. little hooks and suddenly now you can take this familiar, comfortable pattern and add in a little novel on the side and then boom, yeah. that's something that's going to explode. Yeah. And then you start learning what little things you can add. Because it, anyone can add, like, let's say you learn the lesson of sort of taking a breather, right? Taking like a second to not play. Well, then when you come in, there's a million things you can do, right? But then mm-hmm. as time goes on, you start to learn what little things you can do. And again, it all comes down to, and I hate to say it, but it really does come down to a musician's ego. And you'd be surprised sure. how many egos there are in the music industry, especially for musicians. And I understand it. It takes so much effort and so much time to be good at your instrument. Um, but some musicians never get to the point where they can let go of that. They're just, they just want right. their sound to sound a certain way and they won't relent. And that's fine. But if you want to play as a unit and you want to play in the pop world specifically, letting go of that ego is incredibly essential. But if you're willing to let go of that ego and sort of 
reopen or relearn a new way of playing music, you're going to learn a lot of new cool things that will, in a way, make you a much better musician, not just instrumentalist, like musician than you were before. If that makes a sense. person and person too. Yeah. There's a lot of personal lessons that come with that too. I mean, I, I could say, like I said, I could spend hours talking about how I used to be egotistical and pop world. The pop world sort of changed that, you know, they helped me become more humble and take a step back and be like, it's not about me. I'm a drummer, but it's about the unit. It's about the song. It's about how we make people feel. And that's the important part. And you could take that to um, podcasting. As Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. You can it's, take that to a- anywhere yeah. with anything. So that's actually a, a fantastic lesson to um, wrap up on. What do you have coming up? Oh, man. Well, right now, there's a lot of like cool things happening with the podcast that I can't really say. But one of the interesting things that I'm doing uh, is my podcast up until now has been interviewing musicians and some solo artists. Uh, I've been very blessed to work with some really great managers and agents to get me some good artists on. But for the very first time, I'm starting to evolve a bit with the podcast. So rather than reaching out and interviewing just random individual musicians, I'm starting to partner with record labels. And I can't say which specific oh. ones. There's some really big ones coming up. But I, I'm basically starting to partner with record labels to talk to their specific signed artists and basically cool. go down their management list and talk to their musicians and you know their agents and stuff and getting a, a nice, good... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like... I, I'm trying to be able to talk to the artists, the musicians, and then sure. like the manager to get a good encompass of what makes them a good artist. I was going to say, yeah, could you talk to the agents yeah. as well? Yeah. Because that's something that I think would interest, especially a lot of people in the music world. Like, what exactly are you looking for? Well, exactly. Help me. Exactly. And, and that's what I wanted to do. That's kind of what I want to do with the podcast is I think I've I've interviewed plenty of musicians to give my audience a good insight of what it's like to be a musician. But I think like we've discussed, I'm always sort of looking on how do I can, how I can evolve and one of the things I can do. So where my podcast is going is it's evolving into a way for me to show now that I've, I've talked to musicians, I'm trying to show what it's like to be a signed artist, what it's like to be with a record label and encompass their team as well. Not just the artists themselves. Right. I want to talk to the manager, the agent, the promoter, bring the business and bring the it. business, combine it with the art so that people can understand that side better. That's the next step for the podcast. And it's, it's uh, a lot of work. I'll tell you that much. It's a lot of work when you transition from working with individual people to full blown companies. Uh, but it's a fun, it's a new fun step that I'm learning as I go. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm experimenting yeah. and planning, you know, it's that whole concept of planning and experimenting and seeing what works. And that's the major, a major next step that's coming. And I'm very excited for that to release. Hopefully I'm, I'm trying to get this up and running by the end of the year, but no pressure for myself when it's ready, it'll be ready and it'll be good. Excellent. Excellent. Now, um, Eddie, where can people find you? I'm all over social media, guys. If you guys just type in Eddie Barco drums specifically, I will pop up on any any of the social media guys. Uh, primarily Instagram and Facebook is where I do most of my work. And for podcasting, I'm on all the podcasting platforms. Uh, majority of my audience is on Apple. Uh, I love being on Anchor as well. If you just type in the Nebula Music Podcast, that's where you can find me. I have a really sick website too that I designed myself, which I'm very proud of because I am not a web designer, but I figured it out. That's another example of just figuring things out and just kind of going for it. Uh, Nebula Music Podcast. And um, yeah, I think 
That's oh yeah. And by the way, I'm very open. Like I get so many requests on social media on how to do things, how to make videos, how to promote on algorithms and all that bunch of stuff. I, if you just give me a day or two and you want to send me a message or a DM, just, you know, I get so many messages, just follow up with me, but I respond to everybody. So if you're curious on how to do anything in the music industry, uh, podcasting, or even social media, I will always respond and point you in the right direction. Just give me like a couple days and I'll, I promise I get back to you. Cool. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. Man. Thank you, man. I really love the questions and I love the vibe that you give. I just, I love talking to people, man. And I love talking to you. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode featuring uh, people like actors. Comedians. Uh, survival experts. Authors. Martial arts experts. Basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes. Spreaker. Uh, uh, Stitcher. Google Play Music. iHeartRadio. Um, yeah. you can check us out on all our social media. Facebook. Instagram. Twitter. All the things. It's all at Approved. Yep. Check it out and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.